So we have, if you haven't been with us, we have been going through the, the, what's called the Catholic epistles, in which Matthew explained that word. When we say Catholic, we're not talking about Roman Catholic. Uh, we are talking about the church universal to the Catholic, the Catholic church in that way. And so these uh, epistles uh, are known as the Catholic epistles, which means they were written to, to the church at large. So not just one church in particular, but the church at large. So enjoy the scenery. Um, I saw everybody look up there. So, um, so yeah, so we've been walking through these, and we'll continue to walk through these for, for quite some time as, as we work our way through it. But, but now we're in, in 1 Peter, um, and so we're going to continue to walk through that uh, as, as a community. And just a reminder that the, 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 the letter that 1 Peter is, is writing here is a letter written to, uh, to the church at large. It's written, and so it's written to Christians. So if you are a Christian in here today, um, the, these are words that are written to you, not just Peter's uh, first century readers, but they're also written to the 21st century readers the, of the, in the church. So have attentive ears to that. But if you're not a Christian here, you know, and you're just here because you're curious or somebody invited you here and you're just not sure about the faith, uh, these words also uh, give you uh, a glimpse into uh, what the, the true church is to look like. So I know a lot of times we can see the church on the church in quotations uh, on on TV, or, or you see you see certain churches kind of getting most mostly pastors getting a lot of trouble um, and and do certain things like there's abuse that runs rampant in churches and um, it's 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 terrible, uh, it's a sin, it's evil. But unfortunately, we can all get lumped into that same category of the church, and so I want you to. Pay attention to these words that Peter is giving to the church because this is what the church is supposed to look like. This is how the church is supposed to live their life together. So pay attention as we, as we work through these verses this morning. So in 1939, the, the German pastor and also a martyr who was killed during World War II by, by Hitler, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, published his book called Life Together. Uh, which is a book that stresses the, the vi- how vital the Christian community is to believers. So in the opening chapter, which is simply titled Community, Bonhoeffer says, It is not simply to be taken for granted that the Christian has the privilege of living among other Christians. And he states this because it is something we, we do that we do take for granted. We take for granted that which we need most, speaking about the Christian community. So he describes it this way. This is a little longer quote. Christianity means community through Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ. No Christian community is more or less than this, whether it be a brief single encounter or the daily fellowship of years. Christian community is only this, We belong to one another only through and in Jesus Christ. So what does this mean? It means, Bonhoeffer says, first, that a Christian needs others because of Jesus Christ. It means, second, that a Christian comes to others only through Jesus Christ. And then it means, third, that in Jesus Christ, we have been chosen from eternity, accepted in time, and united for eternity. And this is exactly what Peter is getting at in the text today. 
Remember, Peter is writing to Christians that are spread across the the globe a little bit and are walking through uh, suffering. Suffering is is upon them, and, and more suffering is to come, if you know your church history. And Peter knows this personally because he's been told by Jesus himself that he will die for his faith, that he will die a martyr. And so, so, so uh, and all of this is because of their faith in Jesus, not because they're super nice people or not because they're, they're, uh, they're, they're rebelling against uh, certain leaders, but simply because of what they believe about this Jesus who came as a human being but died a death that, that we deserved and was, and was risen on the third day. And this is what they are suffering for. So he takes time in his letters to remind them of the importance of not just kind of grinning and bearing it and getting through the suffering so that you can get to the, you know, to the joys of life right after that, but he's, he's reminding them of the importance of Christian community, what it means to be in the body of Christ and what that looks like in a world that hates you, in a world that is persecuting you, in a world that, for some, want you dead. What does it look like to live as the body of Christ in the midst of a culture like that? So in three ways, he tells his readers what it looks like to be in Christian community. The first is, he says, to love God's people. Love God's people. Second is to live God's word. And then three is to long for spiritual renewal. To love God's people, live God's word, and long for spiritual renewal. To the first, love God's people. Look at verse 22. Peter writes, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So Peter is obviously writing these words to a people who have already purified their souls. He says it, Having purified your souls, you have already done this. These are a people who have already trusted in Christ and are walking in obedience to the grace and mercy of God that they have found in Christ. And through this obedience, Peter tells them something has been produced because of your obedience to Christ. And he says it's a sincere, brotherly, or we could say sisterly, love, or more literally, in the Greek it says, uh, it translates as an an unhypocritical, which if you type that into your Word you know, document, it is going to have a red squiggly line under it because it's going to say it's not spelled correctly. But what it actually means is to have an unhypocritical brotherly love. So Peter is saying that your obedience to the gospel has pr- produced a real love. A love that is not fake. A love that is not, that is not fading. It is a real love because it is founded in the gospel. Meaning this isn't just mere tolerance for another individual. So when you show up and you see that person who kind of annoys you, um, and you just kind of, let me just tolerate them for the next hour. It's not mere acceptance to say, yeah, of course, I love love that brother or sister um, that I worship with every single day and we believe the exact same gospel in every single way. Um, Yeah, I I accept them, but I'm not going to go that extra step to, you know, have them over to my house or go have coffee with them or whatever it might be. And what Peter is is saying that that these Christians have is a deep 
intense love for one another. So Peter, Peter actually uses a word here that means um, stretched or strained when he's talking about the love that they have for each other. When, when he's describing, and, and, and this, is, this is the love that Peter is saying that you should have, it's, it's a love that is, is not going to just be comfortable. That if you are loving someone deeply and intensely, you are going to feel stretched. You're going to feel challenged. And that's probably how you will know, like, man, I am, I am loving the way Jesus tells me to love. It's when you're being stretched. Because this type of love is what unites the family of God together. And because this love is so evident and so important, like Bonhoeffer said, Peter tells them to continue to do this. Continue to love one another earnestly from a pure heart, even in the midst of your suffering, even in the midst of your persecution. The one thing that should remain, or a couple of things, is your love for Jesus, but then out of that is your love for your brother or sister in Christ. So Paul says this in, so elsewhere in Scripture, but a couple of these are from Paul. And if you believe Paul wrote Hebrews, then it, there's three things from Paul. But Romans 12, Paul says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. And outdo one another in showing honor. Hebrews 13, 1. Let, let, let brotherly love continue. And then 1 Timothy 1, 5. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So continue to love. Continue to love each other. So what Peter is saying very specifically is that, that you, you have been set apart, so that word holiness from, from last week, you have been set apart, or as Peter puts it here, you have been purified so that you would love your brothers and sisters in Christ earnestly. So let me just repeat that. What Peter is saying right here in this verse is you have been recreated in the name of Jesus so that, all caps bold, so that you would love your brothers and sisters earnestly. The huge reason why Jesus saved you so that you would do that. Uh, one of my commentators I've been reading, she says this, she says, Christians are to love one another because by obeying the truth, by coming to faith in Christ, they have set themselves apart from the ways of the world and how they used to treat people. How they used to treat people in the past. So the way that we treat people now as a follower of Jesus should look different than the way that we used to treat people before Jesus. So a Christian's life is to look markedly different than the world. Particularly in how they treat each other within the church. Which can be, and I know some of y'all's uh, church experience and backgrounds, which can be some of the, the harshest and worst places to get attacked is within the walls of the church. Which is sad. And I'm sorry for whomever has had to walk through that sort of pain with people you thought were brothers and sisters in Christ. So why is this so important? 
Well, I want to give a couple of passages here, and both are from John's Gospel. So if you have your Bible or your phone or whatever, go ahead and turn there to John chapter 13. I want you to see this. Get a pen out or a highlighter. That you can, if you don't like to mark in your Bibles, that's fine. But I don't know why you wouldn't. But. So John 13, 31 through 35. Jesus says, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in, him, in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, Yet a little while, while I am with you, you will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now also I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Here's where you can highlight. Highlight those words, by this. By this, Jesus says, All people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus himself is saying that. By this love, this commandment that I give you to love one another as I have loved you, by this the world will know you are my disciples. It seems very easy. And then you have John 17. So go ahead and flip over to John 17. And this is Jesus praying to his Father. It's one of my favorite passages in all the scriptures. Because he's praying not just for the people who are present with him, but he's also praying for us. So Jesus prays, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. So Jesus is praying there that we would have, that in, within the church, amongst the brothers and sisters that we are called into communion with, Jesus prays that, they, that we would have a Trinitarian unity amongst us. That we would be, that we would be just, just as close as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are. That's intense. So Why? Why does he he say that? So you can underline these words. He says, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So this Trinitarian unity that we are supposed to have, that Jesus prays that we we should have, this unity that we are supposed to have, and, and the way that's accomplished is that we are loving one another. Jesus says that through this, the world may believe that the Father sent the Son to die for our sins. Just through our love for one another. So this is way more crucial, I think, than we probably realized. Jesus is saying here twice that our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ is what shows a watching world, because a watching world is watching, Not just what Christianity is like, but whether or not it's true. Or even more, whether or not you actually believe it to be true. And the way that that kind of manifests in your life is how do you treat these brothers and sisters who are covenanted with you, 
How do you treat them? Because it shows up very clearly in how we do that. So in 1970, Francis Schaeffer, I know this is the second week in a row that I've quoted Schaeffer, but that's okay. He wrote a little book called The Mark of a Christian. It's a really important book. It's really short. I recommend it to everyone. But he says, well, within this book, he commentates on Jesus' words in John 17, which he refers to as the final apologetic. He he says the the final defense uh, that we make for the truth, reality, and relevancy of Christianity is found in the Christian community. And this is what he writes. He says, If we do not show love to one another, the world has a right to question whether Christianity is true. Our relationship with each other is the criteria the world uses to judge whether our message is truthful. Christian community is the final apologetic. The final apologetic. So obedience to the truth of the gospel is not merely intellectual assent to doctrine. I mean, that's involved. We've got to know what we believe and we want to believe good doctrine. But it must result in a transformation of how Christians treat one another. So your doctrine that you love, and you, you, know, you love to quote Calvin and all of these other great theologians and, 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 and Bible scholars... Does all of that intellectual knowledge translate into how you live your life? Because it should. So what does this look like for you? Do you only love when you are guaranteed a return on that love? Meaning, if I love them, I expect them to love me back in the exact same way. And if they don't, then that's the end of my love. Do you only love those who share the same interest as you? Do you only love those who are easy to love? And I know that to be true because everybody loves Matthew. So, it's true. Do you only love those who look like you? Same race. Uh, Able-bodied. Healthy. Same income status. Uh, You only love married people because they can relate to you. Or you're single and you only love singles because they can relate to you. Or the same age and stage and all of those uh, criteria that we kind of place on everybody around us. What does it look like for you? Now the idea of of loving in this way is sometimes, I, I recognize that it is sometimes hard to understand because the word love in our culture has become pretty watered down. So we just kind of use it you know, just pretty flippantly. Um, we, we use it to say that we love inanimate objects or, or that we love that particular sports team or, or whatever it might be, that, that type of food. We love it. I love it. And then we use the same word to say we love our spouse and we love our children and we love our, you know, church community and, and all of that. And I would hope at the same time, if I were to press you on that, saying is your love for uh, the Atlanta Braves, and I'm not poking at anybody here. Uh, I know Jonah's looking at me. Um, for, your, for the Atlanta Braves, is, is that the same love that you have for your family? And I would hope that you would say, absolutely not. It pales in comparison. 
That this, this love Peter is pointing out here is, is not an inactive love. It's not the same love that we're using to say we love that particular restaurant or that particular um, sports team. It's a love that goes way beyond that. So I've had people tell me in a lot of ways that they, sometimes they, they don't feel a sense of community or, or that they don't have friends or nobody pursues them. I've heard that over and over again. And typically my, uh, well not over, not a lot, but I do hear that often. But uh, typically my follow-up question to this is, I understand that, but do you pursue others in the way that you want them to pursue you? Are, are you being the good friend that you want others to be toward you? Really is, the, the, the question I'm asking is, um, are you loving in this particular way? Are you loving the body in the way that, that, that Christ has loved you? Are you giving yourself away, uh, not expecting a return on your investments? And usually nine times out of ten, the answer is no, I don't. And I need to. Because within the Christian community, we are not simply just to be satisfied with, with what I said earlier, of mere tolerance and acceptance. We are meant to go deeper. I had a friend challenge me when we first planted Christ the King six years ago, so almost, yeah, six years ago, by telling me a story of an exercise that he did in his 1,800-member church. And that was to, 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 when he's sitting in the pew on Sunday morning, was to just looking at the people who were directly in front of him, directly behind him, and to his, and to his sides, to ask these two questions. Do you know a burden these people are carrying? Any of them, right around you. And do they know a burden that you are carrying? And he said his answer to both of the questions was no. He actually said, Kevin, I went, I went further up in the pews, and I could not even name a burden that somebody had five pews ahead of me or five pews to my right. And he said to, he said to me, don't let that happen at Christ the King. Now, let me just encourage you. I don't think that's, I don't think that's happening at Christ the King, at least not yet. So, uh, so maybe when I go on my vacation in a couple of weeks, you'll, it'll all fall to pieces. I hope not, because then I've done something wrong. But I don't see that here. I see, I see, a, I see a church that, that, that carries the burdens of their brothers and sisters. And you do that really well. I do see that. But continue to do that. Don't let up. So how do we not let that happen? How do we not let up? And so my immediate thought when I was studying this passage uh, was, was thinking about the, the one another passages uh, in the Bible. So this is one another is two words in English, but it's only one word in the Greek. And it's a word that is used 100 times in 94 verses in the New Testament. So, so a lot of the, and they begin with, these words, one another, do this to one another. So 47 of those verses give instructions to the church, and 60% of them uh, come from Paul. So that lets us know that because Paul was primarily addressing his letters to the church, that these are for us. These are for the church, and I'm not going to go through all 100 of them, um, but I just want to just kind of overview them. So 
because uh, while we're dealing, you know, we're dealing directly with unity and love of brothers and sisters in Christ, and, uh, and although there are specific love one another passages, like the one I read from John 13 and John 17, all of these are dealing with love as kind of the overarching umbrella and how we are to love each other. So you have about 15% of them dealing with humility, like Romans 12.10, outdo one another in showing honor. Or 1 Peter 5.5, later in 1 Peter, clothe yourselves in humility toward one another. You also have some that that do deal directly with love. Galatians 5.13, through love, serve one another. Or Ephesians 4.2, bear with one another in love. And then others would include kind of a miscellaneous category like don't lie to one another. Comfort one another concerning the resurrection. Uh, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds. And all of these describe perfectly what we hear Peter declaring that these Gentile Christians are already doing. They're already doing this. They're already loving the, brother, the brothers and sisters uh, in this way that, that the Bible calls them to. They are living out this final apologetic in a culture that, yes, does hate them. Jesus says, they will hate you because they hated me. It's a culture that stands against them in every way, yet at the same time, the same time they hate them, at the same time they stand against them, they cannot deny that something is truly happening in their midst because of their love for one another. So in our second point, this command to love is explained and expanded upon by Peter because we learn that it's rooted in God's prior saving work. So look at verse 23. Peter says, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. Of God, so here Peter is kind of kind of hearkening back to his words about being born again. So he's using this word seed, and he's using two different forms of of the word seed: one that's uh, perishable and one that's imperishable. But we also have to notice that right here Peter places the emphasis of this entire work on God as the one who has granted them new life in Christ. So just as we've already learned in previous weeks, it was God who foreknew them from before creation, before the foundations of the world, and God who has chosen them to be his sons and daughters. So it was just like we sung earlier, it was nothing in us that made God uh, do this. And nothing that we've done or will continue to do to give ourselves such a privileged position that we have in Christ. And Peter is making the case that they should love one another because they've been born of God. Our faith should give birth to our actions. This is why it reads from, from, verse, from the second part of verse 22 through the first part of 23, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again. So again, Loving one another is a mark of your faith. Because the the love commanded in verse 22 is the result of one's belief in and obedience to the truth of the gospel. So, 
If you're having a hard time loving an individual, let me just say, it is not their fault that you are having a hard time. And I'm preaching to myself here as well. Even though they may be hard to love, they might be the hardest person here to love, it is not their fault that you can't love them. Because it is something within you that is not believing the gospel rightly, that is causing you to somehow see yourself as better than they are, or better off, or in a better position, or in a better kind of season of life, or even easier to love than they are. So why are they hard to love? Is the question you could ask yourself. But then think about all the ways that you're hard to love as well. And yet God still loves you. He still pursues you. He still gives himself to you. Even when you are hard to love. Because the motivation to love is not personal preference. If it was personal preference, then we would have every reason to be able to justify why we don't love that person. It's because they're a different color or they, uh, they don't smell good or they can't do all the things that I can do. Then we could justify it. But the motivation to love is not preference. The motivation to love the body is because we are motivated by the love God has shown to us in Christ and as God loves us, we can then love the body. So we are 100% relying upon the love that God has for us to continue on to be able to love the body. So, and this is only possible because you are born again, as Peter says. Peter tells his readers in the second part of verse 23 23, how they are born again. He says, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. So the terms, terms Peter uses here, this, these two words, perishable and imperishable, are two of his favorite words that he likes to use in his letter. We heard it last week in, in chapter 1, verse 18. He says, You were ransomed not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, which is implying is imperishable. And then later in chapter 3, verse 4, he says that God is pleased when women have the imperishable qualities of a gentle and quiet spirit. And then here in our text, he uses his favorite words again to make a distinction between two means of salvation that we have in our world. One is the way of humanity, which is perishable, and the other is the way of God, which is imperishable. So Peter is calling, calling one this imperishable seed and the other uh, the, other, the perishable seed. So what is, it, so what is he talking about um, when he's talking about seed? Well, when speaking about a human means of salvation, I would assume that he is speaking of a salvation that, gains, that, is, that one gains by works. Good works, specifically. Which we know is not possible. Which we know is an exercise in futility. So if one tries to gain their salvation by works... They will never meet the demands it carries. Even if, it's, even if those demands were made up by you. You can't even live up to your own demands. Your own laws. 
So the imperishable seed, on the other hand, we know to be the gospel of Jesus Christ in its usage here. So there's several ways in which, you can, which this word that's used for word, which is logos in the Greek, there's several ways that this word is used throughout the New Testament. So one is to refer to Jesus as the word, or Jesus as the logos, and we see John do that at the very beginning of his gospel in chapter 1. Another is to refer to the entirety of the Bible as the word, which that can be kind of applied here a little bit. But the other, which, we, which I think we see more clearly in our text, is to refer to the gospel as the word. So Ephesians 1.13 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. So the means here, Peter says, in which God begets his people, in which God gives, gives, uh, gives his people new life, his birth of his people is the seed of God's word, which is the preaching of the gospel. Paul says in Romans 10, 17, he says, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, or we could say the gospel of Christ. That's how one believes. So then in verses 24 through 25, Peter introduces his readers to the source of this thought process. And here, Peter points, is using the Bible. When he says, For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, meaning they are perishable. But the word of the Lord remains forever, imperishable. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. This quotation comes from Isaiah chapter 40, which we read earlier in the service. And it's a passage where comfort is proclaimed to God's people who are in exile in Babylon. So a very similar situation to what uh, Peter's readers are facing at this particular time. God's people were in exile. God's people were not in the land. They were strangers in the land. And, And these words from Isaiah 40 were given so that these people would be comforted in their exile. And it's similar to what Peter is doing. Because it's a reminder that God has acted on behalf of his people, and he will do it again. He will restore them from exile. He will will save his people. So the message of good news to his people in Isaiah 40 is that God fulfills his promises, and the nations of the world, though they seem strong, cannot resist his promised word to deliver his people. So God says in in, uh, uh, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 15, we didn't read that far, but he says, all the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Essentially, we we, we try to make these things seem seem big and and strong and mighty, and we look at the nations of the world and say they have strong armies and and they they have lots of money and all of these things that make them appear strong. But God says... According to my scales, they are like dust on the scales. No weight is given. They are nothing compared to my promised word to you. And this is true in our own culture today. Especially during the month of June where sin is is celebrated, not just in a city far, far away, 
but in your daily target run or your Amazon browsing. Be shoved into your face. And you look at the news and you think, our world is going crazy. Everything is falling apart. And that's only the stuff that we hear about. Is there any escape from this? Has God forgotten us? And enter Peter's words from Isaiah 40. All flesh is like grass. And all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall. But the word of the Lord remains forever. So yes, the world is going crazy. Yes, the world stands against you. But but all of that doesn't matter. Because the word that stands forever. The word that, that never even fades remains forever. And that word is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the wisdom of God. That's the good news that was preached to you, Peter says. And it's this gospel that has come to you and that you are to remain in, which is what our final point gets at in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, of how to foster a Christian community. That because this is the gospel that has been preached to us, therefore we should remain in it by longing for spiritual renewal from it continually. That doesn't stop. Look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 in First Peter. Peter says, So put away all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So what we have here is is Peter is giving an overview of what a life changed by the gospel looks like. Which involves first with the negative. When Peter says, put away all, all of these things, all of these sins, all malice, all deceits and hypocrisy and all slander. So Peter is saying that in order for a Christian to be faithful... In order for a Christian to be able to ingest God's life-transforming grace and to continue to love one one another earnestly from a pure heart, they must put off everything that would hinder them from doing so. To put away all malice means to put away not just evil deeds, but the actual desire to do evil against each other specifically. To put away all deceit and hypocrisy means to put away completely any form of deception or hoping for the downfall of others that you may carry in your heart. So maybe you're jealous of so-and-so because they seem to be getting uh, a raise every week or they they got this new thing that you wanted before them. And, And so you begin to think, I wish they would fail. So that would stop. Peter says, get rid of that among you. To put slander away is not just to put it away, put away the spreading of false stories, so gossip, but it's also putting away uh, the thoughts that we have that are disparaging towards others or the, or the words that we say that are just kind of a, a, kind of a slight towards somebody. Maybe we say it in passing, maybe we just kind of say it out of a passive-aggressive nature, which we sometimes like to do. But Peter says, put that away. One commentator said it wisely. He said, uh, well-timed words 
that carry insinuations about others are often all that is necessary. So all of the sins listed here are sins that tear at the social fabric of the church. They are sins that have and can rip away the threads of love that keep us together. And I've seen that happen. I've seen churches torn asunder because of one simple little word. They can destroy a church. So Peter says, as a result, that no sin is to be tolerated in the community, even those that would disrupt the unity of the local church. So then in verses 2 through 3, he tells this readers what the central admonition is for them. What, what truly is, is, is going to foster the Christian community amongst you? Even after you've put away all of these sins, to remember I said last week that, uh, that the Christian life is not, not sinning. That's not, that's not what the Christian life is. So Peter is saying the same thing here. He's put these things away, but there needs to be more here. And he says to them to long for this pure spiritual milk. So before moving forward, I want to say, I must say what Peter is not referring to here. So Peter is not using this term about milk to convey the the maturity or lack thereof of his readers. So if you're familiar with your Bible, you know that Paul does this very thing in 1 Corinthians 3 and in Hebrews 5. The author does it there as well, where the context in those letters are spiritually immature believers. So Paul talks about you should not be on milk anymore, but you should be, you should be longing for the, for the meat. That's what you need. But we know that's not the context that we have here in Peter's letter or amongst Peter's audience. He has already touted their deep understanding of the gospel. He's already bragged about their, their love for the brothers and sisters in Christ. So Peter is telling the believers Um, not that they're immature, but that they're very mature, but that one thing they need to be doing is to long for the spiritual milk so that they will continue to grow more and more in their salvation, but also in their love for one another. So essentially, he's saying to them, you are running the the race well, Christian. Keep running. Don't stop. And the way you keep from stopping is through longing for constant spiritual renewal, which is a day-by-day, moment-by-moment action that involves the whole self. Um, Just as a side note, so I like like Anglicans, and uh, I like it. We're not Anglican. We're not going to be Anglican, so don't don't worry uh, about that. But I do like the way in which they order their day. So if you've ever seen a, an Anglican prayer book or whatever it is, they'll have a, they'll have a reading and prayers and, and certain confessions throughout. So they'll have one for the morning, they'll have one for uh, the afternoon, and they'll have one for the evening before they go to bed, which is just a simple way in which they are shaping their day around the truth, reality, and relevancy of the gospel. So maybe that's a practice you could put into play in your own Christian life. So that you're remembering day by day, moment by moment, that you are a child of the king. So Paul puts it this way, using the same Greek word as Peter does in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, 
to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, so your whole self, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. So what we have here in verses 1 through 3 is this order to growing in the gospel, which is first shedding destructive vices, so repenting of your sin, so that you might grow up into salvation. So the milk here then, it becomes the very substance of your life, which comprises all that Christians need to progress in their spiritual lives. And this milk Peter speaks of is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So are you, are you getting your nourishment from this milk that, spe- that Peter speaks of? Are you, are you running to this fountain of the gospel to be refreshed and to be renewed day by day, moment by moment? Do you long for it? Do you remind others concerning it? That when they have a struggle or a, a suffering that they are walking through, do you remind them of the truth of the gospel? Because this is not a side note to the Christian life. It is everything to us. So Peter says in verse 3, if, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So he doesn't say if here to sow doubts into the minds of his readers. Peter does this so that they would contemplate whether, that, whether they have actually experienced this sort of nourishment from the Lord. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, you will continue to do so. And Peter was confident, at least among his immediate audience, that their answer would be yes to that question. Yes, we have, Peter. We have tasted that the Lord is good. And these words of Peter's are not just his that he made up, but they, they are pointing uh, to Psalm 34, which is one of Peter's favorite psalms. And we know that because he alludes to it a couple, a couple of more times in his letter. But in verse 8 of Psalm 34, it reads, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Which is a way in which, again, Peter hearkens back to God's people in the Old Testament to say, this is how God's people have always lived and how you are to continue to live today. Tasting and seeing that the Lord is good to his people. And this is a desire which, which springs from an experience of God's grace in your life. And it's an experience that, that leaves believers desiring more and more. But it's also an experience that should leave us with a deep desire to love the brothers and to love the sisters in Christ. Let's pray. Father, your word says, O taste and see that the Lord is good. And I pray that we would be a, a, a community, a Christian community that truly tastes and sees day by day, moment by moment, that you are good. And then out of that, that sweet goodness that you show to us every single day, that we, that we get a taste of every day, that we would allow it to change us. And I pray specifically that it would change us and how we love each other. So I pray, God, that we would not depend on ourselves for this, but that we would even go home today praying to the Spirit and asking that He would change us. 
that he would help us to love people better so that we might point others to the gospel. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.